Good morning, Internet. Welcome to another episode of the Internet Movie Firearms Podcast. And as always, I'm your host, Dr. Gary. So today I have, again, like all my episodes, I think I say, I think I have a fun episode for you. Um, because I wouldn't pick them if they weren't fun. So, having made that disclaimer, we are going to finish up what we did last podcast um, by going over the sequel, The Mummy Returns, from 2001. So, last time we chatted about the, not the original Mummy, um, but of the the 2000s-ish series, the 19, it was a 1999? 1999 movie, The Mummy. Um, so now we're going to do the sequel. I, I mentioned that, like, oh, maybe I'll do the sequel. Well, I saw it on Hulu uh, yesterday, and I decided, uh, what the heck, why not rewatch it, refresh myself on it, and uh, let's chat about it today. I do want to get a couple more disclaimers out of the way with this one as well. So I know I said on the last one, hey, we're going to deal with a lot of historical things. Don't quote me on everything, um, because I don't use a script. I don't have notes I just kind of have a couple pages open for reference on the internet to kind of jump back and forth to make sure that if I do try to say anything specifically, I'm not completely flubbing it up. Having said that again with this one, um, I'm going to be covering some more historical things. I'm going to be saying a lot of, like I said last time, like I said last time. So I, I apologize that there's going to be a lot of connection there. I probably should have done one super episode. Um, but you know, we would have been an hour and a half of me rambling on about God knows what. So let's get into the movie again. Having said that you'll hear me clicking around a little bit, but I'm really not going off notes or anything like that. So again, I apologize as I am not an expert. This isn't going to be considered scholarly by any means. This is just fun. Um, when I think about the accuracy of a podcast, I think more about if you're at a lunch table with your buddies back in the day talking about, Oh, which superhero would be the uh, what superhero and, and, uh, what celebrity you'd want to take to prom, you know, that's kind of what this is the equivalent of. So don't take it too seriously, just like these movies don't take themselves too seriously. Okay, so, getting into it, The Mummy Returns, 2001. A lot of the characters, and by a lot, all the main characters came back from the first movie. So you have Brendan Fraser as Rick O'Connell. Um, the super American standard movie tough, tough guy. Uh, Rachel Wise as his wife, um, companion. In the first movie, I kind of called her a sidekick. This movie, she is no longer a sidekick. She is straight up equal partner in the action adventure. She's awesome. Um, Evie O'Connell. And then also a little bit, we're going to be getting into some uh, reincarnation stuff. So she does kind of have like a side character that, that's, we'll talk about that with the plot. Um, Arnie V, Arnold Vosloo comes back as Emotep. Uh, not Billy Zane like I thought last time. He does look like Billy Zane in my mind. Uh, it's not Billy Zane. Arnie V comes back as Emotep. John Hanna comes back as Jonathan, the, the goofy comic relief brother and Oded Fair comes back as the Magi guy, one of my favorites. Um, like I said in the last time, Dwayne Johnson is in this movie, you know, the, the rock Dwayne Johnson. Before he was a mega superstar, he was the Scorpion King, um, and terribly, terribly CGI'd Scorpion King. Um, and then the one new character, realistically, that's, that's in it, um is the O'Connells are now married. So this takes place a couple years after the, the events of the first movie. They're married. They have a kid. Uh, I don't know. How old is he in this movie? 10 years old, maybe. Um, plays Alex O'Connell, their kid, who... Let's talk about acting a little bit, and let's talk about the, the kid. Um, when it comes to child actors, I normally, when I watch a movie, don't get too upset if a kid isn't a good actor, because what young child thrown into a, the movie production, trying to be a good actor. It, it's kind of an unfair thing in my mind. I think he does a decent job. When you look at the reviews on the internet for this movie, and just like everything on the internet, including this podcast, um, just a bunch of opinions, and everybody thinks they're an authority on the subject, right? So a lot of people were cutting him down, being like, oh, he's obnoxious, it's cringeworthy, you know, things like that. 
I think that he did a pretty good job. Um, he was funny. He was a brat because he was supposed to be a brat. He played being smart well. He played being, you know, uh, crafty and wily pretty well. I thought he did a good job. I was not annoyed by watching him in this movie. Having said that, when we're talking childhood actors, you know, he's no Dakota Fanning because, um, you know, or, or uh, what's that? girl off of um stranger things if you guys watch stranger things 11 what's her name she's a good actress too so the kid does a decent job brendan Fraser's character uh, par for the course his characterization things like that really hasn't changed much you know again you see a little bit more emotion coming out of it in this role because it deals with his wife and son in some scenes but overall standard movie tough guy plays what he needs to and, and does it believable and well enough. Rachel Wise, my uh, movie heartthrob, is Evie, does a great job as well. Her character, um, through some plot magic of reincarnation, um, is a lot more of a bad chick in this movie. Great with swords and guns and all that. So, in the first movie, she went from kind of being the librarian who didn't know how to adventure to now being, like, not only very smart and intelligent, but also, like, very, very tough character. So, she's probably the standout, um, most well-rounded character of, of the series at this point. Uh, Imhotep, played by Arnie V, par for the course, same. John Hanna, playing Jonathan, par for the course, same. His character is the same, same kind of witty one-liner jokes and self-deprecating humor and, and weasley type character clumsy weasley things like that pretty funny and then the magi guy um again his character is exactly the same as it was in the first one so i can see how people are a little grumpy um that they don't really get into it too much um oh there's another guy named izzy in this name uh played by sean parks i don't know if i've seen him in anything else um but he's like a pilot in, in the movie because you always need that kind of standard pilot but he's funny he brings good comic relief he, he's a good time i think he's a, a fun addition and it kind of he brings some more backstory to brendan Fraser's character a little bit talking about like every time you come around i get shot in the butt um things like that it it's kind of funny uh, a little corny but kind of funny so the movie was pretty quickly came out after the first one so only two years um, from the first one. It also was, I would say, a hit. Budget-wise, it says here $98 million. So you're looking at $100 million to make the movie. The first one had a budget, I think, of 90 but they did it in $60 million. I can't remember if that was the right one. Um, this one brought in $435 million, which I think that's right around what the first one brought in as well. Um, but I didn't re-look it up to see what it came in. So, a little bit more budget, brought in about the same. Um, the critics, some like it, some hate it. This is one of those movies where if you look at the, the average person, your average viewer, it's ranked pretty high as far as reviews goes. Whenever you look at it, the, the critics, you know, the guys who drink in, uh, or I should say guys and gals who drink with their pinky out and, and think, like to smell their own farts, um they kind of knock it down a little bit. And this is one of those movies I don't expect a movie to be something more than what it's acting like it's doing. So this is one of those movies where the acting is good enough, but it, it's not profound. It's not going to win an Oscar. The action is pretty good. Can it be slightly cliche? Is it anything completely new? Not really, but it's a good, fun action-adventure movie. You know, paying homage to classics like Indiana Jones and things like that, where it is over the top. It is absurd. Um, the one thing I do like about this movie, it makes fun of itself. Especially in the beginning, when they're talking about, um, oh, the mummy, the, the lore, right? And then Rick O'Connell keeps saying, like, oh, they're going to take over the world. And they're like, how did you know that? And he goes, that's always the story. And it's like this funny shtick that they do throughout the movie of, like, oh, of course that's how it works out. You know, it... It's not trying to be this artistic craft. It's supposed to be fun. And that's what it does well. So I think this is one of those movies where listen to what the people who, who watch it like, you know. And the people who like to critique things and because they're, you know, critiquing the craft. Um, I think they're 
they're being a little too high and mighty on themselves there. So as far as grade for the movie, you know, I, I mentioned this again, going back to the first movie from the, the stream it, rent it, buy it. It's a buy movie for me, especially nowadays. Like if you go to Walmart and you see it in a box set, all the mummies buy them. They're good, clean fun. Um, right now it is on Hulu, but you see it on Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, back and forth all the time. So definitely stream it. It's definitely worth watching if you haven't seen it or if it's been a while and you're like, oh, I wonder if that was any good. It's not as good as the first movie, I don't think. I like the first one more, but the second one, it's a decent sequel. Um, I've seen it a bunch. It's been a while. I rewatched it again last night and I wasn't bored watching it. And I kind of was like, oh, I forgot about that part. That's funny. Um, so let's talk about the plot a little bit. And this is where, again, disclaimer, I might mess some stuff up because I'm kind of going off the top of my head here. Let's talk about the history of... Actually, let's hold off on talking about the history of Egypt. Let's talk about this. So the, the plot of the movie is, again, you're dealing with uh, fighting magic mummies. Mummies coming back to life, and they're trying to take over the world. So, the movie kind of starts out with talking about the Scorpion King, right? The Dwayne Johnson trying to conquer the world, and he gets defeated. Then he makes a deal with um, Anubis, and Anubis gives him his army for his soul as a trade. And so then the Scorpion King can take over the world. Well, every 5,000 years, then... Um, the, somehow there's like this time thing where... You find the bracelet of Anubis, you put it on, and it tells you where to find the pyramid that the Scorpion King's at, so you can resurrect him and conquer the world, and if you defeat Dwayne Johnson, then you take control of Anubis's armies and conquer the world, so you have that kind of plot line going on, right, where you have Scorpion King, we have to get to his pyramid, so within a certain window of time, so that way we can take over the world, well, then the bad guys decide, well, if we want to defeat the Scorpion King and take control of his army, we need a tough guy to do it. So they bring back Imhotep from the first one. And it deals with reincarnation where Anaxunamun, there's like a modern day Anaxunamun who is helping out and transferring her soul over. And then Evie's character is knows Anaxunamun from a prior life and she gets some skills and stuff from this reincarnation. That part's a little bit like, eh, I'm not really into it, but they do it well enough to me not to roll my eyes too much. You just look past it. Um, and they deal a little bit with, like, fate. And again, it's not taking itself too seriously because whenever they do talk about fate in this movie, they kind of make a joke about it. Like, oh, of course that's how it works. You know, things like that. So, it, yeah. Um, obviously, adventure ensues. You have good guys, bad guys, fighting dead mummies, trying to get to this pyramid um, with a bunch of pit stops of ancient Egypt along the way to eventually have a big showdown where Imhotep, Rick O'Connell, and the Scorpion King go at it. Anaxuna Moon's character and Evie's character battle. And, you know, I don't want to get into too many spoiler alerts, but it's been out so long I, I don't think it matters too, too much. So let's, let's talk about the history that they're trying to convey. And I, I touched on it briefly last episode, but I'm going to do it a little bit more on this one just because... Um, I know this is the Internet Movie Firearms podcast, not Internet Movie History podcast, but um, I, I think it's worth noting because it's kind of fun. So studying ancient history is very difficult because you have to look at, you know, finding those But in history. I was a history major, uh, FYI again, for those of you who didn't know, oh, many, 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 about a decade ago. Um so looking, obviously you want primary sources, right? You want the original documents that somebody wrote, things like that. But a lot of that stuff gets lost. So you have to go off of like word of mouth, lore, things like that. Finding other things and piecing together, making assumptions. So ancient Egypt is one of those ones that's very, very tricky. And because they didn't use lang written language as similar to westernized written languages, it also makes it tricky because you have to do certain translations and things get lost in translation and things shift and change. Yada, yada, yada. It's very difficult. There's a lot of assumptions. However, when it goes to um, the characters, so the Scorpion King, there was rumor, no, I don't want to say rumor to be, there is assumptions that there was a king of Egypt around 3000 BC, right? So we're talking at the very beginning of the Bronze Age. Um, when it comes to history, in the 1800s, they came up with a three-tiered scale that I learned from video games. Um, 
three-tiered scale to, to describe history, and it's based on weapons and technology. So you had the Stone Age, right, where everyone's using stones for things. The Bronze Age, where they start can start to forge lower temperature metallurgy, making bronze, which you can make good tools out of bronze, where you can have weapons and carving things, cutting things, uh, chisels, things like that, out of out of bronze, does a decent job. And then you have the Iron Age, right? So the I want to say the Bronze Age, and it, it, it's different all over the world. So the Bronze Age generally starts around three thousand BC. Um, and it starts in kind of the, what did they, what would they used to call it? Not the breadbasket of civilization. I'm, someone's going to be punching themselves in the face listening to this, um, cause it's been so long. Um, but like Egypt, the Mediterranean or Mediterranean area, right. Where civilization stemmed from first. So, you know, Mesopotamia into Egypt and then eventually over to Greece and all that, Mediterranean Sea is kind of where the Mecca of change happened. So, 3000 BC, Bronze Age. Um, there was some kind of scorpion. They called him the Scorpion King. There's not a lot of evidence of it. It's just a lot of assumptions. So, a guy like that kind of did exist. Obviously, uh, or as far as we know, he didn't raise an army of Anubis. And I would assume that he didn't because we haven't been conquered by giant dog soldiers like in the movie. Um, Imhotep... I did mention that he existed like a thousand years before his lover Moon did. Um, so Imhotep was a real person, again, allegedly, as far as we know. I want to say like 2700, 2600 BC. Um, so a couple hundred years after the Scorpion King Imhotep was around, he was an architect slash engineer slash physician slash consult to the king slash pharaoh. Of, of Egypt at the time and there's not a lot written about him and it's only was like much later whenever he was written about so yeah there was an Imhotep but it you know when we're talking hundreds of years after the Scorpion King and then probably about a thousand years before all the other main characters so Anaxunamun and Nefertiri so Evie's character is a reincarnation allegedly of Princess Nefertiri not Nefertiti Nefertiri oh I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher this so Nefertiri was, I believe, married to King Ramses II. King Ramses II is pretty famous for allegedly being the pharaoh that was around during the whole Exodus Moses story. I did a quick look back last night as I was watching the movie, being like, wait a second, I, I, this sounds familiar to me. Uh, it's been, again, a decade since I've taken like a Bible as a primary source of history classes and things like that. But I want to say generally it's considered Ramsey. The whole Exodus story with Moses is considered to happen around the time of Ramses. Ramses was married to Nefertiri. From what I remember, before Ramses was Tutankhamun, right? King Tut. He was married to Anaxunamun. So this relationship that in the movie they, they portray Anaxunamun and Nefertiri as like training battle together. Um, so I kind of had... In real life, I assume that their timelines were very similar, if not some overlap there, I believe. And I think Anaxunamun was the daughter of Nefertiti, which is supposed to be the most beautiful woman of all time in Egypt. And, you know, people would travel bajillions of miles to bring her gifts and look upon her beauty. Um, yeah, so, you know, the Scorpion King, 3000 BC... 2700 BC, we're looking at around Imhotep, and then I think it's around 1500-ish BC is Anaxunamun and Tutankhamun, and then right after that is Ramses and Nefertiri, and right before both of them was Nefertiti. So those are some of the names that you may be familiar with with Egyptian history. I probably screwed it up. Again, this isn't scholarly. I'm just going off of quick, brief things that I, is interesting enough, but not so interesting that I'm going to spend a whole bunch of time on. Um... So that's kind of that's kind of the movie. That's kind of uh, Act One, if you will. So again, this being the Internet Movie Firearms podcast, I like to break it down into three acts. Act One is where I kind of talk about the movie, which I just did. Act Two is where I talk about the guns in the movie, how they use the guns in the movie, which is what we'll get into. And Act Three is how I would use the guns in the movie, and if I had a magic movie ticket like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Last Action Hero, what I would bring with me. If I were the leading guy in this movie. 
Okay, so we talked about the history, talked about the review. I like this movie overall. I give it a B plus, A minus, right? Um, but let's get about into the guns. So the guns slightly actually more different than the first movie than I thought they were going to be. Um, in the first movie, Brendan Fraser's character uses like French revolvers and all that. He has gotten rid of that and switched straight over to American firearms for the Mummy Returns, um, which I'm a fan of because I like American firearms more than most international firearms, uh, especially around this time. Uh, the movie takes place in the th mid thirties, so maybe nineteen thirty-five, give or take a couple years. Um, it does take place before World War II. And the reason I point that out is because <laughs> whenever the era of these movies come about, then there's a good chance that everybody likes the, the usual bad guys of Nazis. No Nazis were in this movie. I know if they did do that, they'd probably get yelled at for ripping off um, Indiana Jones. But it is, you know, when it comes to the occult and magic and stuff... Hollywood loves to use Nazis as bad guys getting into the stuff like that. So there's no Nazis in this movie, but it does take place right before World War II. Um, so there are different cars. There is some modernization of firearms. Um, stuff that people do recognize overall in form factor. So 1930s is when this movie takes place. Um, so let's talk about the guns in it. And I'm going to be clicking, like I said, a little bit here. Um, let's start with... So with with the the Mummy podcast, the first movie, I I kind of talked originally about Rick O'Connell's rolled up floating sack that was on the boat, his pack of guns. Um, there is another scene similar to that in this one where he pops open the trunk of his car, um, and he has a bunch of different stuff in it. And again, I just loved it as a kid. I was like, yeah, so I want a trunk like that, where he's got you know two different shotguns, Thompson submachine guns, some revolvers, a bunch of ammo, things like that. Um, so as far as hero guns go, in the movie, the, the two main characters who use guns a lot is going to be Rick O'Connell and then the Magi guy. Um, Rick O'Connell uses a shotgun mostly as his primary weapon. The Magi guy uses a Thompson submachine gun and his awesome sword. I just like the, whenever they pop the trunk open and he flips down his, you know, prepper stash of all of his weapons whenever they're about to go battle the bad guys for the first time in the movie rick o'connell looks at the magi guy and it says something along the lines of like you prefer the shotgun or the thompson he goes hmm I, I prefer the thompson and it was just like i don't know it just reminded me of people wine tasting we're like mm, that's a good vintage uh so again thompson submachine gun you'll see a lot and we'll, we'll, we'll go into those a little bit um but let's talk about the shotgun first so rick o'connell's character in that trunk scene, grabs a lever-action shotgun, uh, Return of the Winchester 1887 shotgun. Uh, pretty famous, sawed-off lever gun that you'll see in, uh, you know, Terminator was pretty famous for it, where he, like, flips it over his shoulder. Uh, from what I remember in the movie, there's no flipping of the shoulder whenever he's, you know, running the lever on the gun. Um, but it does do pretty good handiwork for your run-of-the-mill average um, mummies with blowing them up. So, spoiler alert, I will uh, probably be my pick uh, when it comes to picking a gun in the movie that I would want to use. So, I'm going to assume probably 12-gauge. When it comes to the ammunition he was using for his shotgun, so with, with shotguns, generally you have your, you know, your bird shot, which is a bunch of pellets to shoot flying birds. Um, you have buckshot, which is a couple big pellets that really put a wall up in multiple holes or slugs where it's one giant like think a pumpkin cannonball flying out of there blasting things i was trying to figure out what he was using in the movie as far as ammunition and obviously it's a movie so there's going to be blanks and special effects and things like that but looking at his uh bandolier that he's wearing over him it doesn't look like a slug, and I don't know a lot about, like, vintage shotgun shells, because I know these use paper shells, but it looks like he's using plastic shells because they're red, unless they're red wax paper uh, shotgun shells. So, back in the day, you know, they were they were paper, and now they're plastic and, and brass. Um, they do look like they have a wad covering over the top, so I'm going to assume it's not a slug. I would assume that old, vintage, even paper-shelled, Shotgun slugs, the slug would be exposed like they are now, exposed like they are nowadays. So I'm assuming using buckshot 
because whenever he's shooting the the roof of the bus in the movie, they have a shootout on a bus. It is leaving big holes, but it's not peppering it. So I, it has to be something powerful enough to penetrate sheet metal, which most birdshot won't. It'll dent it. Maybe if you use like a bigger shot, like number four or something, you can get through some real thin steel, um, really thin steel. But I'm assuming he's using buckshot throughout the movie, which realistically would be the best choice, I think, when it comes to trying to just blow things and disintegrate things, right? The mummies, to kill them, you have to like, disintegrate them blow them into pieces and they fight pygmies as well which are moving around super fast super quick things like that um so lever action shotgun good choice winchester 1887 like i said before anything winchester with model 18 in front of the the number i'm a big fan of around that time i think they, they made the best stuff um thanks john moses browning hand on your heart everyone all those boomers out there um, one thing with this too, Evie does pick up the shotgun during the bus scene and the way she picks it up and, you know, throws that lever and blasts away a mummy, I would say is, I'm going to sound super sexist here. One of the hottest things I've seen in a movie. So I love Rachel Wise. Again, I always joke that not joke, but I'm kind of serious. My wife looks like her a little bit. So that's her celebrity doppelganger, even though she's going to be rolling her eyes at me when she listens to this. So, uh, you know, big fan of that scene, needless to say. Um, let's talk about the Thompson a little bit too. So the other, um, Odette Fair, you know, the Magi guy uses the Thompson throughout. So I love the Tom, Tommy gun after seeing Saving Private Ryan. When I was a kid, I wanted a Tommy gun so bad. And I used to play Medal of Honor Allied Assault on PC and I used the Thompson gun for everything. So I'm a big fan of this. The gun in the movie is one of the um, Chicago typewriter style where it has the vented barrel. It has the pistol grip foregrip and uses the drum. So more gangster style Tommy gun, less World War II military style Thompson submachine gun. Um, like I said, he, with with the scene with the trunk, he was like, I'm, I'm a more of a Thompson guy myself. So he uses that movie magic he uses it and blows away a bunch of dudes with it it has a 50 round drum but he probably fired like three million shots out of it so you know typical hollywood the magazine never runs dry um he does use it quite a bit in the bus scene again where they're fighting four mummies that are attacking the bus as they're trying to run away and he drops i would say probably the full drum into one of the mummies before it, it kills the mummy because he saws it in half basically with the, the thompson so Kind of going forward to jumping ahead to Act 3, where I'm going to talk about what I would use. In the movie, and how the movie portrays things, the Tommy gun is not as effective against mummies as, say, a 12-gauge shotgun with buckshot at close range. So, keep that in mind with what the movie portrays. Now, 50 rounds of 45 ACP coming at you at close range would saw most things in half. So, realistically, I think they made it a little weaker than it had to just because it looked really cool with him just dumping that submachine gun into things um, but I digress um, since we're on the subject of submachine guns let's jump ahead to what the bad guys use so in the movie most of the bad guys use uh, I don't know how to say it, the style solothurn the S1 100 submachine gun um, which most people don't know it as the Steyr. Most people know it as the MP34. Has a, um, I don't want to say catchphrase, has a nickname, a gnomer known as the Rolls Royce of submachine guns. Supposed to be really smooth and great running. You know, you could probably describe it runs like a Singer sewing machine to this gun. Whenever I was a kid watching The Mummy Returns, I didn't know the difference between submachine guns that had the magazines that stuck out, right? So it's one of those submachine guns where the magazine isn't below the gun going from, like, down up into the action. It's going in sideways. So there's a stick magazine sideways, which a lot of people hold onto that, that grip stick on the side and then shoot the submachine gun. So think Sten gun, the Sterling submachine gun, things like that. I always thought they were Sten guns. Um... I didn't know a whole lot about World War II era submachine guns, and I still really don't. 
But it, it isn't uh, a um, Sten. It is a Steyr MP34. Probably shooting 9x19. So it was developed by Steyr, which is Austrian. Then eventually Germany annexed Austria for right before World War II. And they switched over to 9mm, 9x19 Parabellum. They did chamber it in Mauser now and again. I'm going to assume... What would be a good question is when did Germany annex Austria to know if these guns would have been, you know, the... What, what did they chamber it in? 9x23? Yeah, 9x23 Steyr was known as the MP30. And then... They chambered it in 9x25 Mauser, which I don't know very much about those. I'm going to assume, even though they're longer than the 9x19, that they're not that much more powerful because most of the time people weren't chasing high pressures during this era with when it comes to ammunition. So, you know, your 9x19 is the same 9mm that people use nowadays where they say, you, you know, whenever you say 9mm, that's generally what they're talking about. You know, 9mm Luger, 9mm Parabellum, 9x19. So, 9x23, 9x25, um, I think there's a 9x21, I can't, I'd have to look at a ballistics chart again, I can't remember all the details of it off the top of my head right now. Yes, they have a longer casing, most likely, um, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have that much more power. Um, one thing is cool, is it was chambered for 30... Luger, I believe. I'm actually looking at the Internet Movie Firearms Database. Pod, or not podcast, that's me. Um, uh, I could have swore it was chambered in 30 Luger. Maybe I'm missing it while I look at this. Um, 30 Luger is kind of a cool round. Every once in a while you'll see... So, I almost bought a Ruger, it would have been a P89, I believe, that came with a swappable barrel to shoot 30 Luger, which is a very hard round to find. It's not popular, but it, it was a used gun, and it was going to come with it, and it was going to be cheap. So I could shoot 9mm, swap it out, and put the 30 Luger barrel in and shoot 30 Luger, which get a little bit more speed, but it's a lighter bullet, so it kind of, energy-wise, I think it equals out. But yeah, so I think it... It came in a bunch of different calibers, and I don't know which one it would have been in the movie at the time, taking place in the 30s, because um, I don't know when Germany annexed Austria, and I don't know how fast it took them to switch from their 9mm Steyr to 9mm Luger. So, that's me rambling there. Pretty cool addition. It is a hog. It does weigh like 9 or 10 pounds, but so did the Thompson. So when you're looking at some machine guns, ooh, which one's better? You have 9mm in the Rolls-Royce, of submachine guns or you have 45 in the chicago typewriter both pretty legendary and iconic tough choice tough choice on which one would be better i don't know i'd probably go with the thompson but i digress uh another gun that's used sawed off shotgun it's shown rick o'connell uses it um it is shown in the arsenal in the trunk and it also is used once when they're fighting pygmies real quick so I guess he was carrying it the whole time. You never really see it, and he uses it once in the movie. Double barrel shotguns, especially like the little sawed-off pistol-style shotguns. Um, wrist breakers for sure, but a lot of power in a small package. So if, and according to movie magic, it looks like the shotgun's the most effective against mummies, I guess it wouldn't be a bad choice to have as a backup. Um, but I would probably just would rather have more ammo for that Winchester. Uh, rifles, two main rifles. We have the LaBelle Returns. Uh, it was used in the first movie. Uh, it comes back in this one. Real quick, you see it. It's used by the bad guys, and you see it in the jungle uh, where they're fighting the pygmies. Um, the 1886, it's famous for being the first rifle to shoot smokeless powder rounds. That was adopted by the military, and it has a cool tube magazine and bolt action. Um, yeah, so LaBelle makes a return. Then we have three different variations of the Lee Enfield. So, it's par for the course, that good old 303 British round in the Lee action, which is super slick, super fast. Um, I did mention last podcast, and I'll mention again in this podcast, that there is some good screen time with it because they do show... There's some a scene where one of the bad guys is going to shoot Horus, the... Um, falcon that they're using to communicate kind of like their um early 
prehistory cell phones. Um, kind of just shows the bad guy. I think his name's Lachna swinging the rifle around and, and shooting. So it's kind of a cool like glory shot of the uh, Lee Enfield. Um, according to the um, Internet Movie Firearms database, it's Lee Enfield number one, Mark three. I do not know my Lee Enfield marks, Mark one, Mark three, number one, or you know, I, I don't know him. Uh, I can always just tell Lee uh, because of the way it is. Um, just kidding. Normally the muzzle has that cool, like bulldog looking nose. It has that neat slant magazine to the trigger guard. And then it has, um, the comb of the stock has kind of straight. So it's, that's normally, I can just say, oh, that's a Lee Enfield. I don't know which is which as far as like, what's the jungle carbine? What's the standard? What's not standard? What's valuable? What's not valuable? Don't know. Um, Jonathan's character uses it, um on top of, they're on top of like a bluff sniping. Again, this is during the jungle scene. The jungle scene and the bush shootout scene are the two big scenes where you, you have a lot of gunplay. So that's really what we're going to be talking about those two scenes most. Um, there's a, just a fun um, back and forth between Jonathan and the Magi guy where, you know, obviously Jonathan's the big goof and the Magi guy is like a tough guy, you know, hero. And he's like, do you know how to use that? And Jonathan says something like, oh, uh, hello, good chap. I've been three times fox hunting champion with this. And he's like, do you know how to use that thing? And points to his sword. And he pulls the sword out, does a little twirl and puts it to his neck. And he's like, the only way to kill an Anubis warrior is to chop off their heads. And it's like, you know, a little bit of uh, toxic masculinity, if you will. But it, it's just funny to show that, you know, Jonathan has a screw up in most of the movie. Um, is pretty decent with the rifle. In, in the movie and the 303 British Lee Enfield is a good one to be good with, honestly, especially during this era. And, Oh, my movie girlfriend, Rachel wise Evie comes up with throwback to my first podcast, the Lee speed sporter. So we first talked about the Lee speed sporter in the ghost in the darkness, because that's what Val Kilmer's character used to hunt lions with. Well, now it makes a comeback in this movie um, as the sniping rifle with a uh, sporterized Enfield with a scope sniping rifle that Evie uses during that jungle sniping scene. Good choice, I think, because, you know, you get that Lee action, but it's much lighter and more handy, really, because it gets rid of a lot of that wood stock, the full-length wood and the bulkiness, and it still has iron sights if you want to use iron sights. It has a scope. Um, so, you know, it is a sporterized Lee Enfield and it still shoots the full power 303 British. I assume the capacity is still, you know, around five rounds. Um, the Enfields, do they use five or 10 round mags? I'm not sure, but I assume they use stripper clips. So I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's going to be quick to reload those anyway, compared to like the Lee speed, Lee speed sporter, the great addition um, Evie, Evie and Jonathan up on that bluff um, were just beast mode with their sniping, taking out the bad guys at exactly the moment that you needed to for drama and for efficiency. What I will say when it comes to strategies of, you know, the movie when they're setting up their like sniping ambush in the jungle against the bad guys, they have a lot of torches. And what I find to be very bizarre about torches... Um, that's some very poor light discipline. When it comes to seeing things... So if it's dark out, every little droplet of light um, can be seen for very, very, very far. It's been a while since I took an astronomy class, but I want to say we did some experiments on how far you could see something. I want to say like something like a candle. So you take your garden variety, you know, Yankee candle, scented candle, or birthday candle... Excuse me, and you you light it and you keep it. I, I want to say it's like a thousand yards. If it's dark, like pure darkness, at a thousand yards, you can see a candle. Or for the naked average eye for your uh, twenty twenty vision. Um, so them having a torch up on a bluff, and it looks like they're shooting maybe a hundred yards, maybe two hundred yards. Um, and and as far as the movie goes, when they show it, like they would, that would be just a giant beacon of like, hey, look at us. You know, so when people talk about the apocalypse and having campfires and stuff, you I mean, if you're in out in no man's land and it's dark at night and somebody has a fire, you can probably see them miles and miles away, that fire. Um, if you don't believe me, whenever you're on an airplane flying at night, look down. Um, if you're flying over a very 
rural area and you can see little lights and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, neat, that's someone's house light and I can see it from an airplane. So, yeah, light discipline, not very good for their sniping mission. Um, oh, and during that point, this is going to kind of go back to Act 1. Sorry, I'm jumping around this time. Um, not enough coffee. But let's talk about pygmies real quick. So, yeah, let's take a gun break and talk about pygmies and history. So, in the movie, they do go to a jungle area, and they do make mention of it, like, oh, we're not in Egypt anymore, and then they say something like, oh, well, it, back in ancient times, all of this would have been Egypt. Um, kind of just a quick thing of saying, like, oh, we're not in the desert now, we're in the jungle. We've moved very far south along the Nile. Um, and they battle these pygmies. Now, pygmies do exist and i don't know if pygmy is supposed to be an offensive term or not is that scientific is it offensive is it slang don't know but pygmies do exist generally pygmies in the movie they're portrayed as like one to two foot tall little guy little guys um and we'll talk about how they could rationalize that in the movie right little tiny baby mummies right running around super quick pygmies Pygmies in real life generally are just considered, like, genetically smaller-statured people. And it's going to be different than, say, something like dwarfism, where it kind of just happens via... I don't want to say... Um, how, can I, how can I phrase that? It happens by chance, right? It's an anomaly, necessarily. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just it's not the, the normative. Pyg pygmies and, and all that is... There's some genetic things that happen, whether it be from diet, DNA. There was some stuff I was reading about, like, is it have to do with, like, not being able to get insulin the same way? Is it certain growth hormones? However, so there are, you know, isolated populations of pygmies where because they are really being genetically homogenous, you know, say you have very short people. And those short people, through microevolution changes, are breeding amongst themselves. And being short is beneficial. Say they live in the jungle. There's no necessarily need to be super tall. They keep breeding amongst themselves. Um, I don't know. It always sounds weird to talk about humans breeding. It's, it makes it sound very cold. Um, having babies. Making love. Um, starting a family. Right? So if you have people who are below five foot tall and they have babies with each other because they love each other... Um, their kids will probably be five foot tall and then those kids will breed with other kids who are, and then eventually you have these genetic populations and communities of people who are just shorter than normal. It appears that most pygmies, the populations of pygmies that you see in Africa, Asia, and I don't even, I don't think South America, I think just Africa and some in Asia, um, the popular, where you hear popular, popularized is going to be Africa. They're like four foot to five foot tall. So it's like four and a half feet, so not significantly short. And especially for back in the day, your quote-unquote normative height of, of, a, of a human wasn't that tall either, um, just because of nutrition and things like that. So, you know, throughout history, I think the average height of a male human may have been like, what, 5'8"? So we're talking like maybe one foot shorter. Not two foot tall, not even three foot tall, right? We're talking just like a short person, not super but it's just it's more of the whole community is short as opposed to just oh some are tall some are short some are medium so that's my kind of thing on on pygmies kind of looking at some history of pygmies and how they were treated um they are at an extremely high rate of hate crimes um extremely high rate of slavery things like that especially when you're talking more third and second world countries you know Harkening back to Africa, even after slavery was absolved in America, there's some pretty horrific stories. There's one I was reading about the most famous pygmy in America. He was from Africa. I can't remember his name. If I searched on my phone, I could probably find it. Um, brought to America. He was at the World Fair in like 1904 and was put on display. He had sharpened teeth and people were paying money and would give him like a nickel or something to look at his teeth. He was put in a zoo. He was a zoo exhibit. We had a human in the 1900s as a, a zoo, treating him like a zoo animal, which 
you know, I know progress has happened over the years, but 1900 was not that long ago, and it makes me really sad. Eventually, they found out that how bad it was, and they released him, and he lived in Virginia, and then killed himself in 1916. So, clearly, um, being a zoo animal is not good for someone's psyche. So, that's kind of my spiel on pygmies real quick. Just showing that, like, they do fight a sort of pygmy in the movie, but it is not uh, the most historically accurate and not at all portrayed about again pygmies are just slightly shorter populations of people um they also talk about shrunken heads too so they're in egypt africa right and then they go down south further to the jungles of africa um they talk about shrunken heads from my quick research i can only find evidence of shrunken heads in south america as well um, which is kind of cool how they do shrunken heads you know they basically peel the skin off the skull and put it in like a little wooden frame and then boil it and tan it just like leather and that's why they get those like gruesome facial expressions because like the lips and the eye sockets and the nose don't shrink the same way as the rest of the skin does so yeah shrunken heads kind of a neat thing um i'm sure it wasn't neat for the people who got decapitated so their head could become a, a trade prize um but yeah shrunken heads do exist but not in africa in south america um and again, they, they boil the heads and that's how they shrink them down. So for the movie, if they want to say, oh, we have these little pygmy mummies attacking everybody in the jungle, maybe they shrunk the heads and then they put the heads on other smaller skeletons and that's how they can rationalize fighting two foot tall pygmy mummies as opposed to if you wanted to portray pygmies um, insensitively, they would have been more like four to five foot range in height. So that's my spiel there and sorry if that took a turn to uncomfortable discussions about things because um, i don't want to get into politics and identities and things like that but uh yeah it should be noted it should be noted um so let's jump back to the firearms so we talked about the two submachine guns we talked about the lever action shotgun the sawed off double barrel shotgun and we talked about the rifles so just to review the lee enfield's Three different variations, the LaBelle rifle, the just regular sawed-off shotgun, don't know what brand or make, the Winchester 1887 lever shotgun, the Thompson submachine gun, the um, MP34 submachine gun, the Steyr. Let's talk about handguns. So, in the movie, we have the Luger shows up. The bad guys use the Lugers, um, the Luger PO8 came out i think in oh, i'm just gonna click here and see what it came out because i can't remember 19 1913 oh no i'm an idiot 1898 so whenever it came out so one of the more early um semi-automatic pistols in nine millimeter you know if if it were 1900 and you had to pick a handgun to use the luger is a pretty good one but again as we start to get into oh I lied. I was talking about the Steyr being in 30 Luger. I'm an idiot. The Luger was in 30 Luger. So 7.65 by 21 millimeter Parabellum. So 30 Luger. Um, pretty cool guns. Pretty distinguishable because of their pencil barrel. And it was later replaced by the Walter P38 slash P1, which also had a pencil barrel. But the operating system... Um, we are more familiar with the operating system of the Walther due to the Beretta 92. Um, but Luger, all the same, great period gun to be used. Um, let's see what else. The Mauser pistol, the C96, um, 7.63 by 25 Mauser. So very popular gun of the era. You know, the old Han Solo looking gun where it has the magazine up front and you can feed it by stripper clips. Um, Pretty, pretty, I think you can feed them by stripper clips. Um, or magazine fed. I Oh, I should have looked that up because I don't know. Now I'm talking out of my butt here. But cool handguns. I did mention that I'm shocked that it wasn't in the other other movies that we watched. Um, from the Tiger and the regular Mummy. So historical piece. You see them a lot in these adventure movies because it does have a great look and great screen presence. Um, oh, back to Hannering Heart, everyone. I pledge allegiance to the Colt 1911. Um, this one is the A1 because it has the back strap, has a little bulge in it. So good service pistol for the time. You know, for your usual 45 ACP single stack seven round slash eight round mags. Um, oh, fun thing. 
I saw this on Internet Movie Firearms Database, and I watched it whenever I watched the movie, and they were accurate with it. Uh, excuse me. But during the gunfight at the museum, where uh, the Thompson machine gun has uh, a 700-round mag, um, Evie uses the 1911 to fight off some bad guys, and the slide is locked back, and it still shoots. So it's just kind of, it's just kind of funny, the movie error that you don't notice until someone points it out. And then when you see it, you're like, oh yeah, it's there. Um, we have Smith & Wesson Military and Police Revolver. So probably in 38 Special, the... Now, whenever, uh, I'm a big Smith & Wesson fan, and whenever I look up the military police one, hold on, I'm jumping around here. The MNP, everybody nowadays sees MNP as their, like, modern tactical line that Smith & Wesson makes from their, their semi-automatic polymer frame striker fire pistols. Um... But the, that term military and police was the old 38 special revolvers that you've seen. I think they still make them now on their classic lines. I think you can still get them. But they are K-frame size, so like mid-sized revolver. Um, normally in 38 special. Super popular for the era. Um, I bet that if you went around to uh, any cop in from like 1920 to 1980... Um, 75% of them are going to be using some type of Smith & Wesson Model 10 slash MNP slash Military and Police Revolver. Um, so normal six shot, double action, single action, four to six inch barrel, I think. Um, I'm sure they came in more variations than that, but good addition. Uh, 38 Special is a little weak. Uh, even at the time, I don't think it was super, super powerful, but it was good enough to get the job done. Um, we also had... Uh, Brendan Fraser, he got rid of his, what was it, the 1873, some kind of French um, 11 millimeter revolvers to something much, much better. The Smith Wesson Triple Lock and 44 Special. So, 44 Special, for those of you guys who don't know, is the precursor to the 44 Mag. Um, God, I can't remember the guy's name. Why can't I remember it? And someone's going to again be punching their their headphones listening to me try to talk about um keith was it elmer keith uh did a lot of work in load development on the 44 special which eventually led to the 44 mag same thing with the 38 special to 357 mag so elmer keith is kind of created the modern magnum revolver cartridges that we know of so at the time though they weren't around i don't think um i think they came out in the 50s and 60s so 44 special though not the most powerful revolver round ever in history, but at the time, pretty good. And it still holds its own today with good loads. So, you know, if you're shooting something like a wad cutter in 44 Special, I wouldn't be afraid to use it. And I think it's a pretty darn good um, revolver. End-framed revolver, so bigger than the 38 Special uh, that we talked about, the last Smith & Wesson. So, uh, bigger framed. Great revolver. Were they six shots or five shots? I think they're six. I think they're six shooters. So, again, much, much, much improved over that French one that he's using. And it's double action, single action, like I said. So, great addition. Probably one of the better choices in the movie. Um, the bad guys, there's like these treasure hunter, mercenary, grave robber guys in it. They kind of realistically just use Webley revolvers. And they say that they're Mark Fives on the Internet Movie Firearms Database website. Um, and and free, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but most of my info, I start off just by using like the lists on internetmoviefirearmsdatabase.org for most of these movie things. However, they're not always right. It's just like Wikipedia. Anybody can post things. And this is an example where I think it's wrong. So I don't know. The Webleys, there's six different series, and they're super complicated. Um, like I said before, the Webley changed small changes, and they changed the mark variations, and then with that, the ammunition changed, even though it's all 455 Webley, you have to make sure you use the right series of ammo. On the website, it is saying that they are Mark 5s because they each had 6-inch barrels. In the movie, they did not look like 6-inch barrels. I want to say that they're 4-inch barrels, um, and I think the Mark 5, I could swear, did not come in a 6-inch barrel. 
So again, this is one of the ones, don't quote me on it, but I'm, it's a Webley. It shoots four, five, five. It's a break action um, revolver. One of the more powerful ones of the era, probably the most powerful break action revolver ever, but break action revolvers aren't as strong because, you know, they, they're supposed to break in half. So that hinge kind of weakens things. Um, I think, uh, this is going to be a tricky one. So the Mark six, I think had, yeah, I don't, um, I was looking at this and I was like, aha, it's wrong. But now that I'm looking at it, I might not be either way. It's a Webley on the website. It says that they're Mark fives and that they're six inch barrels. I don't think that they are. They may be Mark sixes. Um, let me scroll down here and look and see if I can find any. What was I thinking about then? Oh, there's the Mark IV. And it's not talking about it at all. Okay. Well, I may be sounding like an idiot. I may not be. Who knows? But they use Webleys in them of various generations and various barrel lengths. Um, one other fun fact about this. So there's a scene where one of the mercenaries has an FN high power and you can see the grip tucked into his waistband, cocked and locked, not in a holster in his waistband. Um, a great way to accidentally hit, you know, running high powers are known to have a pretty light trigger. So you're carrying one cocked in your waistband, not my fan, not in a holster. Um, but it's anachronistic. The Browning high power did not come out at that time. But what's fun about it is it's the same mistake that Indiana Jones, one of the movies, can't remember which one did, where one of the bad guys, actually it might have been Indy had it. It's on a scene where on the boat and they're in a um, corridor and I can't remember, or a P-way if you're on a boat actually, passageway. And they show it and again, it, it matches the era. It looks like it could belong there. No one's going to be like, oh my goodness, is that a machine gun during the musket times, right? But it... You see that sometimes where it's like, oh, the high power wasn't around yet, but they used it in the movie as a prop. I don't know if this was a mistake where they put it in the movie in the same way that Indiana Jones made the same mistake, or if it was paying, maybe a prop master was like, you know, it's kind of famous that Indiana Jones in the movie that we put our, an anachronistic pistol in it. Let's do the same thing for this because this movie is very similar to Indiana Jones. I don't know. That's kind of a conspiracy, conspiracy theory in my mind of the prop department where... Two movies that are very similar do the same exact mistake with a gun. So, I think that covers everything. Ombrel mentioned to uh, a slingshot that the, the the son uses to shoot some people in the neck with in the very beginning of the movie. Um, I think that is pretty neat. And any other... Let's look here and see if I missed anything. I don't think so. And if not, whatever. Good enough. So, oh, actually, here's here's a funny little thing that they talk about. During the scene where Rachel Wise is um, shooting, sniping from the cliff, Brynn Fraser's character looks at her and says, so make sure you hold it tight to your shoulder, lead the target a little bit, squeeze and not pull. I always love in movies where they talk about um, things like that, where, you know, it, you, uh, it's like lessons in a movie, and it's, it's fairly decent gun lessons. I just, I just kind of like it. I think that's fun. Since this is a firearms movie podcast, they do give some strategy um, and technique advice. Um, you know, squeezing, not pulling, leading the target, hold it tight to your shoulder when it kicks, all of that. So I think I hit everything up that I wanted to. Um, oh, and since the army of Anubis, this is about swords that I don't know a lot about. looks like their weapons were uh, bronze, which would be pretty accurate because they were around, you know, allegedly summoned during the Bronze Age when that would have been the best. So it's kind of neat to see that they have bronze weaponry and then the Magi had modern steel weaponry whenever they were fighting in some of those scenes. So I don't know. I thought that was like a fun little like, oh yeah, the Magi would probably destroy, you know, if it's sword on sword, weapon on weapon, the steel's going to do a lot more better than the, uh, the bronze would. So just a little thing. So let's... Talked about Act 1, going into history, the review, all that stuff. And then we did Act 2, how they use the guns in the movie and all that. And if you're still with me after this long-winded rant... Oh, man. We're at an hour. This is a long one. 
you're still with me on this one, um, let's talk about Act 3, what I would use. So if I were in this movie and I had a choice of their weapons that I would use, um, I would actually use exactly what Brendan Fraser used in this movie, that um, end-framed triple lock 44 special revolver, six rounds of 44 special. I would take two and dual wield them. Um, if you're fighting mummies, you got to kind of disintegrate them. So the bigger, the better, I, I would say. Um, so I take that 44 special revolver and I would use the shotgun. Like I said, that bus scene where um, the Magi guy unloaded that Thompson into the mummy, it took like a full drum to kill him, where a couple shots of the shotguns were blowing up the big mummies and then vaporizing the pygmy mummies with one shot. So give me that sawed off 1887. I think it works pretty well because as you'll see in the movie, whenever you're trying to shoot them from far away, that doesn't work well. You only really kill the mummy with a gun whenever it's right on you. So the sawed off would actually be pretty nice and handy because it's, there's a lot of running in this movie, running around, jumping, climbing, things like that, adventuring. So if I were in the movie, give me that 44 special revolvers and the 1887 um, shotgun. Now, realistically, I would take the Browning High Power because it wasn't around then, but yeah. Now, last movie, I said I would take um, Smith & Wesson R8 revolvers, modern 8-shot 357s, and a modern trench style shotgun and 12 gauge just to kind of look the part and i think those are still great choices i would still want to use those um just because again we it'd be nice if i'm thrown into the movie to kind of look the part right that way the locals don't get suspicious of me whenever i'm there you know being like oh this guy's from the future not only we're we dealing with mummies from the past we're dealing with a weird guy from the future i don't know maybe it would work so I think that that combo would still be one of the better ones um, for fighting mummies. But I'm also going to... Oh, and the reason I picked a pump over semi-automatic is if we're in the desert, you know, you can force it a little bit more. And, and I think I would just assume it'd be slightly more reliable than a semi-automatic when you start throwing sand into things. But if this one, if I had to go modern, right? So uh, last time I went old school to keep it looking old school-ish... If I had to go with a modern round, I'd probably take like a Sega 12. You know, magazine fed is so much easier to load and reload. You don't have to do single load into a tube. Um, get rounds off faster. It's an AK platform. So if it has been tuned and, and broken in and you've gone over it a couple times, it should do decent in a desert environment. Um shooting 12 gauge semi-automatic so a sega 12 shotgun might be what i pick if i'm going super modern to go back with um and it, since this movie to kill mummies you need to have to disintegrate them i'm gonna go with bigger caliber over efficiency right so nine millimeter and 45 when it comes to shooting bad guys right with modern ammunition perform similarly but we're not talking bad guys we're talking trying to like chunk off pieces of something so i would think like a heavier bullet would matter so i'd go with a 45 and i know people hate on springfield armory and i understand politically why they hate on them and then all the springfield owners who say like oh i've had a bajillion rounds through my springfield and area problem i have had multiple hundred rounds through my springfields um so I would probably take like an XDM in 45 so I could get 13 rounds. Um, a Glock 21 would be, or was it 20 or 21? One's 10 millimeter, one's 45. That would be a good option too. High capacity 45. Let's go with the Glock. Glock in 45. Um, High-ish capacity for a 45, but gives me that big heavy ball that can just hopefully lob off different pieces of, uh, of a mummy. Um, and good in the desert, too. So, yeah, let's go with the Glock and 45 and a Sega 12 would be what I would pick if I went back to this movie with modern stuff. So, again, that's the sequel to The Mummy Returns. I apologize for rambling a lot more on this one than normal, just because when it comes to Egyptian history, things in the movie, how they use their guns, quirks of the guns, things like that, there, there is a lot to discuss. So, that is The Mummy Returns 2001. Again, I give it like a B-plus-ish. Definitely rent it, buy it if it comes in a box set at Walmart, um, 
stream it for sure. It's good, clean fun. Don't take it too seriously. The guns in it are pretty cool. The gunplay in it is decent enough. There's not any gratuitous errors other than endless magazines and some um, prop malfunctions here and there. If I, again, if I were going back in time, I'd want that lever-action shotgun um, and the 44 Special... You know, a modern pump shotgun, modern revolvers would be cool to fit in with modern technology. And if I, you wanted to go straight modern, give me a semi-auto 12-gauge and um, a four, high, higher capacity 45 just to throw some big 230-grain uh, slugs at some mummies. So, again, this is the Internet Movie Firearms Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gary. Thanks for tuning in. And, again, sorry if I got some things wrong. Because I am just kind of flying by the seat of my pants here and just is rambling on, as you can tell on this one especially. So I hope you all have a good one. And remember, here on the internet, we're practicing our First Amendment to practice our Second Amendment. Adios, and have a good one.